Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh Woody. I'm one of the pastors. We're continuing our study of the book of Romans. This is part nine of 50 parts. We're going to be in chapter two. If you want to turn there in your Bible right now, you can follow along on your handout. I titled this message, Religion Can't Save You. You remember, we are breaking Romans into five seasons or five parts. We're in season one. It's God's sentence. We're spending seven weeks looking at the bad news. To appreciate the good news of the gospel, you need to know the bad news of our sinfulness. So season one of Romans is all about bad news. It's God's wrath against sinners. So from 118 to 320, Paul is building the case that every man, woman, and child in the history of this planet stands condemned before God and deserves eternal punishment in hell. If we were going to outline season one, it would break down more specifically like this. First, we talked about the guilt of the non-religious person how they're guilty. And now we're talking about how the religious person or the Jew is also guilty. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about how the whole world is guilty. So that's where we're going today, that religion can't save you. But we as a bunch of religious people sitting in a religious service should sit up and wait, what, what did he say? Religion can't save us? Why? Because self-righteousness, thinking you are good enough, is the great enemy of the gospel. We're going to unpack that today. I love to read the news, and recently I've been reading a bunch of articles that talk about how religion is dying, how there's less and less people going to church, but that is honestly missing the forest for the trees, as they say. According to Pew Research, they've done five surveys over the last few years, and 40% of Americans, or 132 million Americans, say they've participated in religious services in the last month. You can't get 132 million Americans to agree on anything. <laughs> we are a very religious people, even globally. Here are the top four religions in the world. 31% of the world identifies as Christian, 25% as Muslim, 15% as Hindu, 6.5% as Buddhist. There's other faiths I'm not mentioning, but those four faiths alone account for 78% of the world's population. And we are living in a time where people are inventing new religions right now. Sexually, politically, environmentally, new religions are being invented all around us. So we live in a planet that is very religious. We live in a country that is very religious. We obviously live in a state that is very religious. So when the book of Romans teaches that religion can't save you, all of us should pay attention. The religious person, though, they think they're fine. They think their religion will save them. Paul is going to destroy that thought in these verses. This is also the first major discussion of the Jews in the book of Romans. There's been a few mentions, but now we're going to start unpacking Judaism in detail. I just have two introductory comments about Judaism. These are not on your handout. First one, Christianity is foundationally a Jewish faith. What do I mean? Think about it. The Old Testament is the history of the Jewish people. The New Testament is the history of a bunch of Jews who became Christ followers. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament hundreds of times. The authors of the Old and New Testament were all basically Jews. Jesus, a Jew. The apostles, Jews. The early Christians, all Jews. Bottom line is, as Christians, we read a book written by Jews about Jews, and we worship the Jewish Messiah. 
So Christianity is foundationally a Jewish faith. Second, anti-Semitism or racism against Jews is ridiculous. Any Christian hating a Jew is a moron for two reasons. One, they don't understand their faith. And two, that's not very Christian, but that's a different teaching. Again, as Christians, we read a book written by Jews about Jews, and we worship a Jewish Messiah. Paul, who himself was a Jew, is going to speak to the Jewish Christians in Rome and teach them that Judaism alone will not save them. And this is way bigger than the Jewish faith. The application extends to people all around the planet, all around our country, in our state, and you and me. Religion cannot save us. So let's learn that lesson by learning about the guilt of the Jews. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Again, remember the book of Romans is a letter written to Christians living in Rome. Rome had a Jewish population. Initially, the church was probably mostly Jews. And then non-Jews or Gentiles got saved. At times, the Jews had a tendency to look down on the Gentiles. They thought, we are the chosen people of God since Abraham. We have the word of God. At first, the Jews were called the Hebrews and then the Israelites, and now they're called the Jews. So Paul is going to list all of their advantages before he talks about their guilt. He says that they have the law of God or the Torah. The word law occurs 10 times in this section of verses here. The law means many things in the Bible, but it definitely means the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which contain over 600 laws. The law was the very embodiment of truth and knowledge. The Jews were confident they had a right understanding on life because they had the word of God. They revered the word of God so much they wouldn't even touch it with their hand. They used that pointer to keep track of where they were reading. Verse 17 says they boasted in God. They gloried in God. God had chosen them. But Paul would say, your religion has given you a holy book. You are still lost in your sins without Christ. He continues to list the advantages of the Jews. Verse 18, the Jews know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So they have a huge advantage. They know what God wants because they have God's book and they've been studying God's book for thousands of years. There's this story, Benjamin Disraeli, he was the prime minister of England back in 1874, and he was in an argument with one of his opponents in the House of Commons, and the, his opponent attacked his Jewish ancestry. He said this, yes, I am a Jew, and while the ancestors of the right honorable gentleman, that's the guy insulting him, were brutal savages in an unknown island, mine were priests in the Temple of Solomon. <laughs> that's great. So the Jews had this incredible privilege of knowing the will of God for thousands of years. And so Paul would say, your religion has taught you what God's will is. You're still lost in your sins apart from Christ. He continues to list the advantages of the Jews. Verse 19, he says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So 
They know the one true God. They have his book. They know his will. And so they're called to be a guide, a blessing, a help to the whole world. In Genesis 12, God called Abram and look what God said to him. Genesis 12, God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an amazing job they've been given. The Jewish people were called to be a light to the entire world. So Paul would say your religion has given you an incredible calling. You are still lost in your sins apart from Christ. He continues to list the advantages of the Jews. Verse 20, the Jews are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So because they have the word of God and they know God's will, they're called to teach the next generation, to teach children. These are incredible advantages. The Jewish people have been chosen by God. They have the word of God. They have the calling of God. They know the will of God and they're called to be a blessing to the entire world. But religious advantages can feed our pride. Your first blank on your handout, a great religious heritage can become a source of pride and complacency. Religion makes us think we're set, we're good to go, but you can still be lost in your sins apart from Christ. So now Paul is going to show why the most blessed religious people in the history of the world have a sin problem, why they're also guilty before a holy God. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? This is hypocrisy. This is the great danger of all religious people, including the Jews and including me and you. What is hypocrisy? It's claiming to have a moral standard to which one's own behavior does not conform. It's pretending to be what you are not, i.e. not practicing what you preach. Now, as a preacher, I am held to a higher standard, but this is even bigger than preachers. Hypocrisy is a danger for every person. Brian talked about hypocrisy a couple weeks ago. Remember, he said that hypocrisy means to wear a mask, to act a role, to act like one person and be someone else. So the Jews have not taken the word of God to heart. Despite their knowledge, they're guilty because they refuse to live by their knowledge. Their boasting in God is pointless because they don't obey him. Your second blank, it's simply, do you practice what you preach? This is a moment for self-reflection. What comes to mind? Where in my life am I saying one thing and doing something else with my money, my time, my entertainment, my habits, my speech? Somebody once said, practice what you preach or change your speech, which kind of reminds me of a famous anti-drug PSA. I'm dating myself, but when I was a kid, there was this commercial and this dad storms into the room and he has this box of drug stuff and he like says, son, where did you find this? What, who taught you this? And the son's like, you all right? I learned it by watching you. And then the narrator's like, parents who use drugs have kids who use drugs. <laughs> Very effective because we all react negatively to hypocrisy. So the Jewish religious advantage, our religious advantage, is worthless if it doesn't change our life. We tell people, don't lie, steal, and cheat. But do we lie and steal and cheat? Do you practice what you preach? You tell your kids, oh, you need to be emotionally self-controlled, and then you go scream at your spouse. You tell your friend to walk in purity, and then you go look at pornography. You tell your coworker, we got to be honest with billing this class.
client and then you go cheat on your time record. You tell your kid, hey, less screen time. Then you go spend hours on your device. Do you practice what you preach? Paul continues to talk about hypocrisy. Verse 22, he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? These questions cut to the heart. Do not commit adultery. That was the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Of course, every Jew is not a thief and an adulterer and an idolater, but every Jew is a sinner. Every one of us is a sinner, whether or not we are religious. Why do I say that? Because Jesus taught us that the intent of the law wasn't our external actions, but our internal thoughts in our mind, in our heart. You remember the famous words of Jesus in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus isn't nullifying the seventh commandment. He's raising the bar. He's teaching the intent of the law. It's not just our external actions. Your heart is where sin starts. Your thought life makes you just as guilty before God as your actions. You could be lusting after a man or a woman. God sees that adultery in your heart. The law of God should never give us peace. Like you're driving down the road and you see a police officer. You go, how fast am I going? What's the speed limit? Likewise, the law of God, the word of God should awaken our conscience to our sinfulness. The law of God is described as a mirror. We see our sinfulness, our blemishes. The law shows us that every one of us is a wicked sinner apart from Christ. So that sin, that brokenness starts inside of us. Jesus said this in Mark 7. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him from within. Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So someone could say, well, I've never committed adultery. And God says, I see your heart, I see your lust, and that makes you guilty before God. So the person who commits adultery and the person who lusts are both guilty of sin before God. So the Jewish person or any religious person might argue, well, we're the people of God. We're the, we have the word of God. We have the calling of God. Paul is saying without Christ, every person, religious or non-religious, pagan, or like Caleb talked about last week, the good moral person, all are guilty before God and subject to God's wrath in hell. Even if your external actions appear fine, your internal thoughts betray you. And then that last phrase there, do you rob temples? In Deuteronomy 7, it forbids stealing from temples. Temples would have had like expensive golden statues. You might be tempted to steal them. But bottom line, even if your external actions are good, your internal thoughts in your mind and your heart, they betray you. They're sinful. So there are no good people. Everyone is a sinner, even religious people. So having all of these religious advantages does not protect you from your sin. Paul continues, verse 23, you who boast in the law, you boast that you have the word of God, you dishonor God by breaking the law. This is the key verse. You go around bragging, oh, I got the word of God. But if you don't follow the word of God, you dishonor God. This is a good time for a meme. Here's a thought. Maybe you wouldn't have to mention you're a Christian all the time if you just acted like one most of the time. Ouch. 
So the religious person is just as guilty as the non-religious person in their thoughts and words and deeds. But I would guess a few of you are like, I'm not a sinner. I have a verse for you. First John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Over the years when I've talked to different people, they've been telling me about somebody and they've said, oh, you got to meet this person. They're good people. They're good people. Well, that's not true. No one is good apart from Christ. Everyone is a sinner. We lie, we steal, we cheat, we commit adultery, either in our actions or in our heart. Let's bring this into our reality. Let's move from Jews to Christians. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. You have a Bible. You've been raised in a Christian home. You've been going to church your whole life. Amen. But if you don't practice it, you dishonor God. You're breaking the law of God. You're a sinner who needs a savior. This is a sobering passage for me personally. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for 40 years. I heard the gospel as a boy. I've been around the church, the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, Christians my entire life. I've been reading the Bible for 30 years. I've been a pastor 16 years. But the question is, have my sins been dealt with? Am I trusting in Jesus as my savior? I know the pull of religion. Did you just hear my religious resume? I'm set. <laughs> this is kind of funny, but kind of not funny. Over the years, witnessing to different people from other faiths, I'll be flying on an airplane, sitting by a guy. I remember one guy in particular, he was a Jehovah's Witness, and I told him about my faith and my testimony, and he did the same thing. And he leaned over and whispered to me, he's like, don't worry, you're gonna go to our heaven anyway. I was like, that's not what your faith teaches, but I'm glad you like me. <laughs> but it is too easy for our hearts to trust in these external religious trappings. Right now, I'm speaking to all of you that were raised in a Christian home, who've gone to church your whole life. You've been around Christians your whole life, but you've never been born again. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. You aren't saved because your parents were saved. You can't trust in your religious heritage. My parents love Jesus. Isn't that enough? If your sins were never dealt with, you will go straight to hell when you die. You know, many, many moons from now, we'll be in Romans 14. And it says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Himself herself. Your dad won't be there. Your mom won't be there. Your pastor won't be there. Each person will stand before God alone. You will either answer for your sins personally, or you will rest on Jesus Christ and what he did for your sins. So Paul concludes this first section, verse 24. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a quote from Isaiah 52 in Ezekiel 36. So what's the result of all this religious hypocrisy? The Gentiles, the non-Jews, they blaspheme God. To blaspheme God is to speak against God. I'm dating myself again, but I love to listen to DC talk back in the day. <laughs> and this was one of their lines in one of their songs. They said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That's what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
I have two thoughts on Christian hypocrisy. I want to address both of them. First, there are a lot of hypocritical Christians, but that is a lousy reason to reject God and go to hell. I was once talking to a coworker about Christian hypocrisy because in his family decades ago, there was a Christian leader who terribly mistreated his family and his whole family became atheists after that. And I said to him, do you think that leader was following the example of Jesus Christ? And he softened and he said, no. But that Christian leader's hypocrisy had been an excuse for his family to reject Jesus for decades. Again, there's a lot of hypocritical Christians, and that's a lousy reason to reject God and go to hell. You've all heard of the composer Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, prolific composer. He only lived 35 years. He wrote 800 pieces of classical music. I once read this. If you heard Mozart being played poorly, you wouldn't think, that Mozart, he's an idiot. <laughs> no, you'd think, I got to find somebody who knows how to play Mozart. The same is true here. The truth of Jesus is not dependent on any of his supposed followers. Let's have another meme. Not going to church because of the hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of the out of shape people. <laughs> I love that. Simply put, Christian hypocrites are not reflecting Jesus, and you shouldn't let that keep you from him. My second thought on Christian hypocrites. Non-Christians will blaspheme God every opportunity they get, but we should not help them in their blasphemy by being less loving, less truthful, or less Christ-like. In other words, as a believer, we should play Mozart as beautifully as we can. Your third blank. If you claim to be one of God's people, your life should reflect what God is like. So in our church here, we should have a high bar of holiness, but we should also be honest about our sins to discourage hypocrisy. This is how my mind approaches this. I break it down into four quadrants. Upper left, you have a godly Christian. They talk like a Christian, they act like a Christian. Upper right. You have a hypocrite. They talk like a Christian, but they act like an unbeliever. Lower right, the unbeliever. They talk like an unbeliever. They act like an unbeliever. I don't know what's going on in the bottom left-hand corner. You can tell me your theory on that later. But the important thing is, where are you on that chart, and where do you want to be? So let's move on to verses 25 through 29. This is a progression of our thought that religion can't save us. So verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Some of you are like, yes, I was hoping we'd talk about circumcision today. <laughs> Some of you knew we were gonna be in this passage. You're like, we can't be late to church. We're gonna talk about circumcision. <laughs> Now, what is circumcision, if you don't know? It's a surgical procedure to remove the skin on the penis of a newborn baby boy. Circumcision had a high value in the Jewish culture. We're going to talk all about it right now. The word circumcision is used 10 times in this passage. 
But did you know that the Roman culture at this time thought that circumcision was barbaric and pagan? There's all these quotes from Roman authors describing it as this terrible thing the Jews did. So why are we talking about it? How does this fit with the preceding verses? For the Jews, circumcision carried great religious meaning. It was a sign that God gave the Jews that they were his people. In Genesis 17, God is making a covenant with Abraham, and he's telling him, your people will become a mighty nation. And look what God says is the sign of that covenant. Genesis 17, this is God. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations. So God decided that this minor medical procedure was going to be the primary sign that the Jews were the people of God, that he had a covenant with them. But some rabbis took this to an extreme. There was a number of rabbis that said something like this. They said, in the age to come, Abraham will sit by the gate of hell and he will not permit any circumcised Jew to go to hell. In other words, circumcision became your get out of jail free card. I went to our monopoly box. This is an official get out of free jail card circumcised Jews, they don't go to hell, or that's what some rabbis falsely taught. So circumcision changed from being a sign that you were God's people to their get-out-of-jail-free card. So someone might read the preceding verses, be like, yes, Paul, I'm a sinner, I steal, and I lust, and, but I'm circumcised, <laughs> so I'm set. I've done this specific thing to save me. That might sound ridiculous to our ears, but we do the same thing with a variety of religious practices, many practices which are good, but are we trusting in them for our salvation? Maybe it's communion or sacrament, baptism, infant baptism for some. Maybe it's church membership or tithing, scripture reading and prayer. Maybe it's confirmation class. Maybe it's baptism of the Holy Spirit, temple work. Paul would say, what about your sin problem? We don't understand, Paul. I've been circum... I mean, baptized. <laughs> baptized. I've done this specific thing to save me, so I'm good. And some of those things are really good. But if you're trusting in those external rituals to overcome your sin, then you have a real problem on your hand. Paul continues, verse 26. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps or obeys the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, when a non-Jew obeys God's law, won't God declare that person to be his person, his own people? I think of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. You remember that story? Cornelius was a Roman centurion. It says that he was a God-fearing man. He devout. He prayed. He gave money to the poor. An angel appears to him and tells him, go get this guy, Simon Peter. Simon, he sends two servants. Simon Peter comes, shares the gospel with him, and he prays to become a Christian. So related to our passage, the Gentile who obeys God's word is more acceptable to God than a religious person who doesn't obey. 
because religion can't save you. Charles Hodge, the theologian, put it this way. He said, whenever true religion declines, the disposition to lay undue stress on external rights is increased. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, supposed that circumcision had the power to save them. So in our world, when true faith dies, we turn to external rituals to make us feel better about how we stand before God. Verse 27, Paul continues, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and, cir written code and circumcision but break the law. This is a hard word from Paul. Again, remember there were Jewish teachers who said falsely, uncircumcised Jews will never go to hell we have the word of God. We have circumcision. We're set. And here Paul contradicts that. Don't trust in the external acts, church. Well, I was baptized. I took communion. I tithe. I go to church. I was confirmed. I'm a church member. I went on mission trips. Obedience to God outweighs all of that. Trusting in our good works to save us is legalism. Church, do you understand? Here's your fourth blank. Legalism does not defeat sin, it intensifies it. Legalism just makes us take our sin underground. We just get better at hiding our sin. We do a bunch of external good deeds and then we hide our sin. I would never scream at my wife or husband at church, but you get us home and oh boy. <laughs> Here's what should happen. We study the word of God. We see our own sinfulness, our wickedness. We realize I need a savior. We cry out to God to save us and God saves us. That's the gospel. Paul continues, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So this is totally contrary to the typical worldview. You could have this minor medical procedure, think you're set and be a dirtbag. Again, those of us raised in Christian homes, we've been given an incredible gift. But if we disregard it, our parents' faith is irrelevant. God has no grandkids. Your dad was a believer? Irrelevant. <laughs> Have your sins been dealt with? Are you following Jesus Christ? What is the reality of your faith in your life? Remember the words of Jesus in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? External religious ceremonies only help you when combined with a life of obedience. A circumcised Jew who breaks the law might as well be uncircumcised. That's what Paul is saying. This would have shocked his audience. So true Jewishness is not a ethical thing or a racial thing. It's not a physical thing, a surgical thing, or a religious good works thing. Our last verse, Paul concludes, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You know what the word Jew, what it's derived from? Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah means praise. So Jew equals Judah equals praise. There's kind of a play on words here. You want to be praised by people? That's secondary. You want God to praise you. Does God approve of what you're doing? 
That is a matter of the heart. That is a work of the Spirit. So here's kind of a summary of this teaching. I put this on the back of your handout. Truly religious people are convicted by the Holy Spirit, repent of their hard, sinful hearts, receive the Holy Spirit, and are enabled by the Holy Spirit to live a new life characterized by obedience to God. So that's where this goes. We aren't saved by following religious rules. Religion can't save us. Like it says right here, we're saved by the Spirit. So Paul's concluding, a real Jew, a descendant of Abraham, is born of the Spirit and lives a godly life empowered by God. This is a direct attack on religion. Those who say they're saved because of their genetics, their circumcision, or their religion are dead wrong. You're fifth blank. Salvation is by the Spirit of God. Tragically, tragically, the hardest person to see saved is the religious person. It's the church kid. It's the pastor's kid. It's the good moral person because they think they're fine because of their religious works, their good deeds, their heritage. Or else they look at everybody else and go, these people are clowns. I am definitely in. But they are still lost in their sins apart from Christ. As we bring this to a close, as the pastor, I've had the privilege of performing about 27 weddings now. And in the wedding ceremony, I ask the couple if they have the rings. And then I say, every biblical covenant made between God and man has a sign or a symbol of that agreement. The symbol of the covenant the bride and groom are making today is a wedding, pair of wedding rings. And I ask the groom to put the ring on the bride's finger, repeat after me. I say, this ring is a symbol of my lifelong commitment to be the husband God has called me to be. And I have the bride do the same thing thing. What's my point? Your wedding ring only makes sense if you keep your vows. If you don't keep your vows, it's totally irrelevant. If you're unfaithful, it's just a band of metal. A wedding ring is an outward sign of an inner relationship. Forsaking all others, I will be yours and yours alone for the rest of our life. Putting on a wedding ring doesn't make you married. Taking off a wedding ring doesn't make you unmarried. Your sixth blank, the last blank, religious ritual without a heart change is meaningless. Real heart change is only found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Have you been given a new heart? Have you been born again? I trust for all of you it's yes. Then are you playing Mozart beautifully? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you love us so much that you are not going to let us walk around believing bad news, Lord. We thank you that you give incredible religious heritage. God, we thank you that you have chosen us. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us the great commission. We thank you for all these incredible gifts and riches that we have in Christ. But Lord, we do not want to trust in any of that. We don't want to trust in our communion or our baptism or our church reading or our giving, church giving or attendance or any of that, Lord. We just want to trust in you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not been born again, that today would be the day that they become your follower. They quit trusting in good works to save them. They trust in your spirit changing them from the inside out. And Lord, for all my brothers and sisters that believe in you, Lord, help us to play Mozart beautifully this week. We say all this in Jesus' name, amen.